I was born during a slight drizzle one September night in Swansea, which may account for my feeling that there's a lot to be said for rain. My hometown has always had its fair share of the stuff. Indeed, there is a saying that if you can see the Mumbles Pier, it's about to rain. And if you can't see it, it's already raining. I well remember the feeling of relief when a downpour caused school sports days to be cancelled. The thought of having to leap around making a fool of myself in front of all those people used to make me feel sick. It's funny how one's attitude changes as one gets older. Ironically, though, if anyone ever asks me what my favourite subject was in school, I always say games. That was a time I used to like best. When we were let out of the chalk-laden atmosphere of the classroom into the fresh air of the playground. I have to confess, though, that I was not very good at games. From the age of seven, I had to wear spectacles to correct my short-sightedness, and I was always afraid of getting them broken. There was one day, though, when I actually scored a goal. We were playing another form at soccer, and I was right back. I was dawdling near the touchline, talking to a friend who had come to see me play because he needed a laugh. His hamster had just died when a horde of yelling lunatics descended on me, and I found myself lying face down in the mud with my spectacles broken and both nostrils plugged with Welsh turf. The referee, our sportsmaster, sent me back to the pavilion to try to sort myself out. My friend, who was now hysterical with laughter, came with me, his dead hamster forgotten. It was useless trying to repair my shattered glasses, and once I had cleared out my nose, I decided to go back on the field again, if only to get rid of my cackling companion. I peered uncertainly about me as I took up the position I had left. All the other players were up the far end again, and I jumped up and down on the spot to keep warm. Suddenly, without warning, I found the ball at my feet. It had somehow been kicked all the way from the distant end of the pitch. Not knowing quite what to do, I began to dribble it in a somewhat desultory fashion towards the other goal. To my surprise, I met with little resistance, and with a pounding heart, slammed the ball into the net. A goal! I turned and squinted towards my fellow players, expecting hands thudding congratulations on my back. Instead, my captain rushed after me, shouting, You fool, Seacombe, you fool! What do you mean? I said, puzzled. I've scored a goal! It's an own goal, screamed the captain. We changed sides for the second half when you were in the dressing room. That was the last time I ever played soccer. I wasn't really sorry, though. I was into cricket by the time spring came around. You see, they needed a sight screen. Unfortunately, the subject of school days leads me to a shameful confession. I, Harry Seacombe, ex-choir boy, brother of a clergyman, and late of the television programme Start on Sunday, confess to having cheated several times in my life. There's no use pretending anymore. I have worn the hair shirt of my guilt long enough, and the time has come to bear my soul. It's not a pretty sight, I warn you, so if you don't mind, I'll keep my vest on. It can be said in mitigation that I never cheated in school examinations. Our headmaster used to keep a graph of the progress of his less bright pupils, and any upward movement on the steady plateau of my academic achievement would have aroused immediate suspicion. No, my cheating began on the sports field rather than in the classroom, when I was forced to enter a cross-country run. Halfway along the route, I hopped on a bus. No one saw me because I was last of the field, and jumped off at a quiet spot not too far away from the finish. To lessen the enormity of the deed, I kept jogging on the platform. My ruse was never discovered. Not that it really mattered anyway, because I came in tenth. But the seeds were sown. Later in life, I was not averse to flicking my golf ball out of the rough under the fairway with the toe of my shoe. 
This ploy is called using the leather mashie. I gave up cheating at golf after playing a round with Eric Sykes. Not playing around, playing a round of golf. My ball had disappeared into a thick clump of trees and I found it nestling under some bushes in an unplayable position. I took the only possible way out and threw it out to land quite near the green. Splendid shot, said Sykes, as I emerged from the undergrowth. Thank you, I said. Miraculous, really. I dipped my head modestly, especially when you consider the fact that you left all your clubs in your bag on the fairway. I looked down and found that I had taken my golf umbrella into the wood with me instead of my wedge. It's a shot I'd read about in Golf World, I said quickly. The umbrella wedge shot. Let's see you do it again. Eric seemed interested. Sweating slightly, I took a swing at my ball with the umbrella. I missed completely, hitting the ground behind it and causing the handle to fly off. He said nothing. But the next time his ball went into the rough, he took his own umbrella with him. Sure enough, out came a 65 repaint, dead on line for the flag, finishing up only a few inches from the hole. Works like a charm, said Sykes, grinning like an ape through a gap in the leaves. Thanks for the tip. Think nothing of it, I said, through clenched teeth. I knew I had met my master. Cheating at sport is a time-honoured custom, although it goes under the name of sportsmanship. Even the great cricketer W.G. Grace was not immune to it. There's a famous story about his coming out to bat in a county match. The first ball clipped the bales and sent one flying. Unperturbed, he turned to the umpire and said, Nasty breeze sprung up today. Yes, sir, replied the umpire. Make sure it doesn't blow your cap off on the way back to the pavilion. To return to my own guilt-ridden career, I have to reveal that I have cheated in the theatre. When the musical Pickwick opened in Manchester prior to its London debut, I had great difficulty at the dress rehearsal in remembering the verses of If I Rule the World. The lyric had to be sung at a fast bolero rhythm, and once I made a mistake, the relentless tempo made it impossible to get back on the right track again. And so, with typical lack of courage, I cheated. The sets by Sean Kenny were all made of wooden frames and bars, which, when manipulated by actor stage managers in the chorus, came together like pieces in a jigsaw puzzle, forming the Fleet Prison one minute, then in the next, the George and Vulture, or the election hustings at Eatonswill, the scene in which I sang If I Ruled the World to the company. In front of me, as I sang, was a bar, upon which I used to lean as I addressed the crowd. On this bar, I decided to write down in a thick felt pen both verses of the song, so that, as I looked down benevolently upon the company, as innocent old Pickwick, the scheming, cheating Seacombe could at the same time read the words. It proved highly successful, and every night I would bow my head as far as my bald wig would allow and refer to my crib as I belted out a song advocating honesty and all the old-fashioned virtues. One Monday night, however, things went badly awry. Over the weekend, the stage management decided to repaint the scenery. And when I got to my appointed position to sing the song, I was faced with a bland bar of wood with not a word of the verses left on it. Friends, dear friends, I began, knowing that much by heart, and no more. I don't know exactly what I did sing. I was only aware of a puzzled company staring up at me, and my wig swivelling round my head as I turned it from side to side in a wild attempt to find the words on the other parts of the woodwork surrounding me. Afterwards, a friend of mine who was in the audience came backstage and with moist eyes congratulated me on the moving way I had sung the song. And such is the nature of the cheat that I made no attempt to disillusion him by telling the truth. There, 
I feel better now. I think I can take off my hair shirt, so pardon me while I have a good scratch. Oh, that's lovely. Back to Swansea. And the nights when we would lie in bed, my brother and I, listening to the sounds of the ship's sirens and dream our separate dreams. Fred always wanted to be a missionary from the time he was very small, and I intended to be the strongest man in the world. In another room, my sister lay, mentally walking hospital corridors, a shining vision in white, while my parents just lay in bed, wondering what the hell would become of us all. Behind the council house in St Thomas, Swansea, loomed Kilvey Hill, over 600 feet high, its bulk sheltering Swansea from the east wind and its slopes providing a playground for us children. Down towards the bottom of the hill stands St Thomas Church, the clock in its tower with its four black faces and its eight gold hands tyrannising the neighbourhood, its bells reproaching the ungodly a mile out to sea. A lean greyhound of a church, looking down disdainfully from its eminence on the non-conformist terriers of Port Tennant Road. Most of our childhood memories are centred around St Thomas Church and its activities. Whitson treats provided great excitement. We would all gather on Whit Monday at the Midland Station and pile into gritty coaches for the long haul to Calais, about six miles away. It would inevitably rain when we arrived at the field and the umbrellas would go up over the trestle tables piled with sandwiches and cakes and two large tea urns with cups and saucers of thick china all marked St Thomas Church. Smell of wet grass and tea leaves and a faint hint of whiskey from a church warden's breath. Three-legged races and egg and spoon races, the prizes presented by the vicar with a brief smile and the wave of a pudgy hand. Then off home, scolded onto the train by tired teachers and parents, an apple and an orange in your pocket as a parting gift, and the vicar, a church warden short. Saturday afternoon shopping with my mother was something that my brother and sister and I fought over. One of us would go with her to help carry home the groceries up the steeps and leisure crescent from the tram stop on Portenant Road. Swansea Market was in Aladdin's cave in those days, and that was where we always headed. At the main entrance in Oxford Street sat the pen-clouth cocklewomen in their shawls and hats. Before them their tubs of cockles covered with spotless linen cloths, glass measures ready in their hands to serve the passing customer. Around the perimeter of the market were the butchers and poultry shops with clean sawdust-covered floors. There were little cafes set into the wall where you sat at scrubbed tables and ate fresh faggots and peas. Lava bread, a special food made from seaweed and looking like cow pat, was always on sale in the market, along with little bags of oatmeal. My mother used to cook it for Sunday breakfast with bacon, and there was no taste as delicious in all the world. The body of the market was taken up with stalls of every kind, mounds of homemade toffee, marshmallow mushrooms, boiled sweets in the shape of pineapples, pears and even goldfish, sensible dresses hanging from hooks, leather footballs and football boots, chinaware, glassware, and pervading the whole building, the combined aroma of its wares. My mother would slowly work her way through the stalls, the basket getting heavier as she got down to the serious business of shopping for the weekend. Shunnies from the valleys, speaking Welsh, and wearing caps, and scarves crossed to the neck and tucked into their waistcoats, would jostle shoulders good-naturedly with a tweed-suited gentleman from Bryn Mill and Sketty, where the posh people came from. Lace curtains and no dinner territory. Through the market now, and into the dolphin fish and chip shop, opposite the stage door of the Swansea Empire, for a sit-down meal. 
my mother rubbing her hands to get the blood circulating in the wheels caused by the string of the carrier bags. And me, the full basket at my feet, with my glasses all steamed up, tucking into a fourpenny cutlet and twopenneth. There's a good boy for your mother. Eat up, tidy. What I liked about the Swansea I knew in those early council house days was the warmth and friendship which surrounded us. The twenties and thirties were hard times, but they were compensations. In summer, we had the whole of Gower to explore for the price of a ticket on the Mumbles train. Or, with our bathing costumes wrapped in towels and tucked under our arms, we could walk down to the beach for a dip. I've confined myself to my childhood experiences in Swansea because, to me, they're more vivid than many subsequent happenings. I shall always love Swansea for two things. First, for a happy childhood, and second, for providing me with a wife. I've never really left Swansea. <laughs> I've taken it with me. Goon Abroad by Sir Harry Seacombe was abridged by Elizabeth Proud. 